Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Good to be back in front of you. If you're joining us online, we welcome you. We welcome all the kids that are in the room. They're going to be hanging out with us this morning. Uh, as you came in, Miss Amy out there gave you a bag, and inside of that bag, you've got your own little outline to be using. So what I want you to do right now is pull that outline out, and as we open up our Bibles this morning, we're going to be going through this outline, and you adults, that bulletin that you received as you came in the door, the outline for you is on the back of that. Before we dig into God's Word this morning, I, I want to ask a question. I want you to think about, consider a person or maybe people who have hurt you the most. Who are those people? What are the names of those people in your life who have caused you the most hurt? Kids, you can do the same thing. As you think about this, think about maybe those who were mean to you on the playground, who pushed you down, said some nice, not nice things to you, called you names, maybe your brother, sister, cousin who hogs all the time on the switch. Think about those things and write that name down in that first box of that person who has hurt you. Now, as you do so, the other thing that I want you to do is to consider, as that person's face popped into your mind or maybe their name, consider how just thinking about them makes you feel. What emotions run through your body as you consider that person? Kids, what did it feel like when that person was mean to you? How did it make you feel? And you can write that in that next box, that emotion, that, that feeling. I want you to be honest about it because nobody else is going to see this. Now, turn with me in your Bibles to the books of Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at both pieces simultaneously, Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 4. If you're here in the room and you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one out of the seat back in front of you. If you're watching us from home, then you can hopefully have a Bible next to you, or you can pull out the app on your phone and turn to Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4. Contained within these chapters of God's Word, I would argue, is one of the most difficult commands given, given to us by God in His Word. A command that is given to those who choose to Follow Jesus, who choose to walk like Jesus. Look with me first, beginning in Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's the verse that Dave worked from last weekend. And then we continue with verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Kids, on your outline, that very top verse, you can fill in that blank with forgive one another. That's Colossians chapter 3. Now, two books back in Ephesians 4, we find the parallel passage in verse 32, where Paul writes similarly, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And so on that kid's outline, that next fill in the blank is forgiving each other as we finish that verse. The command in both of these passages is to forgive, to be merciful to those whom you feel have wronged you. And I say it's 
one of the most, if not the most, difficult commands given to us as Christians because mercy and forgiveness are so often tied to how we feel about somebody. You think about those emotions that you wrote down when you think about that person's face or that person's name or the way you felt when that that playmate pushed you down on the playground. Emotions are really hard to change. It's really difficult for us to affect our own feelings about somebody else. Now, I can do a lot of external things. I can serve somebody. I can open my home to them, give them a gift, say nice things to them, ensure that all of my external actions are in line with what God wants from me, while underneath the surface, I can still harbor the worst kind of emotions and feelings toward that person. Unforgiveness and hatred and bitterness anger at what they've done to me, or perhaps even what they continue to do to me. And so I would argue that it is humanly impossible, humanly impossible to forgive in the way the Bible commands us. I can say that not because of what's contained within these verses, but rather because of two things that we don't see in these verses, two crucial omissions that Paul makes. The command to forgive is given to us without exception, and it's given to us without condition. Without exception, because Paul doesn't say, forgive unless someone does this particular thing to you. If you're hurt in this way, then you have the option to withhold mercy. There's nothing of the sort contained within these commands, meaning that we don't have the choice of unforgiveness based on the level of hurt that we have experienced at the hands of another person. And I'm not minimizing the pain that you feel or that you have felt. I'm only pointing out what is not contained within the passage. There's no exception. The command is also given to us without condition because it's not an action that is to be taken only after a separate action is taken by that person. Paul doesn't say forgive after he or she apologizes. Show them mercy after they have shown you that they're ready to change. Once they pay you back for the damage they caused, then you have to forgive them. No, the command is simply bear with one another, be kind and compassionate and forgive. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And those last five words are really, really important. We're going to circle back to them in just a few moments. But I point out these two omissions in Paul's statements because I believe that they elevate our ability to forgive in the way the Bible commands us to an impossibility. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I must forgive every horrible thing that has been done to me even before the offender has done anything to make it right. That's a really difficult, impossible command. And yet we know that God never commands us or tells us to do something which we cannot do. And so the question that we have to ask as we read these verses is, how is it that God has enabled me to do something that is humanly impossible? To forgive without condition and without exception. We have to look at the verses around the passages to find the clues as to what God is telling us. And I want to give three things that enable us to do what God has commanded, and then we'll finish out our time this morning by giving three practical things that will help us follow the command, having been enabled by God to do so. 
The first thing that enables us to forgive in this way is understanding that God is ultimately the one who has been trespassed against. In every sin, in every wrong done to us, without exception, He is the one who has been hurt first and more deeply. Now again, that doesn't mitigate the hurt that you feel or or may have felt, but we must understand that God is the one who has been hurt before us and in a much deeper sense. That's really important. Just before the command to forgive that we read in Ephesians 4.32, Paul had said, beginning in Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How was the Holy Spirit grieved? Paul tells us, with bitterness and rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. The Holy Spirit of God is grieved with every form of malice. Now you look at that list that Paul gives us, and one of the things that I noticed about it is that all of those things that Paul listed are things that we do to each other. They're all sins that we commit against other people or that have been committed against us. I can be bitter towards, enraged at, angry at, brawling with, slander against other people. And yet when I do this, Paul says, it's the Holy Spirit of God who is ultimately grieved, who is saddened by what I have done to that other person. The Holy Spirit who is fully God is the one who has experienced the hurt, first and foremost, and more deeply. Last year, I saw a news article about a woman who entered an apartment believing that it was her own apartment. For some reason, she had made a mistake, and she actually walked into somebody else's apartment thinking that it was her own. She saw a man sitting on the couch and believed that she had an intruder, and her first instinct was to pull out her gun and shoot him dead because she thought she was in her own apartment and she thought that she was in danger for her life and so she shot him. After being convicted of murder, the woman received two hugs. One was from the victim's own brother as a sign of forgiveness and mercy. The other hug that she received was from the judge who presided over the case along with a gift. That judge's personal Bible opened up to John 3.16. Now, I read that article as a champion for it. It was a great story of love and compassion and a desire to see the gospel spread to those who need it most. But many in the world didn't see it that way. They had no issue with the relative of the victim coming up and and hugging the woman who shot his brother. But they did take issue with the judge's actions believing that she had overstepped her bounds in offering forgiveness to someone whom she did not have the right to offer forgiveness. It rubbed against many people's sense of justice and that only the victim's family, only those who had been directly impacted by this person's action should have had the ability to show or withhold mercy. Now you think for a moment about how you would feel if your son If your brother, if your husband were killed by someone and then someone else swooped in and said, don't worry, I've forgiven them. Think about how that would make you feel. That even if you were strong in your faith, if you were a strong Christian, if you had the intention of forgiving this person, of showing them mercy, 
and then somebody else unaffected by it comes in and says, don't worry, I've forgiven them, would it not rub against your sense of justice? This is why it's important for us to understand who it is that has been ultimately trespassed against every time one person wrongs another. Yes, we get hurt in the process. We experience pain, but because God is the one who has been hurt first, and because God is the one who has been hurt more deeply, He is the one who has the first right of forgiveness or unforgiveness. And what is it that God has chosen to do? He has chosen to forgive through Jesus Christ. Now you flip the scenario. Someone has shot and killed your son, your brother, your father, your husband, and you have chosen to forgive that person. And then someone unaffected or less affected by the crime against that person says, but I'll never forget them. or I'll never forgive them. Having been forgiven by the one who first experienced the hurt, does the bystander have any right to withhold forgiveness? No, none at all. And so if God is the one who has been ultimately trespassed against with every sin, every act of indiscretion, even if you were hurt in the act, and God has chosen through Christ to forgive, then what right do you have as one who is also trespassed against God and been forgiven to withhold forgiveness? And right there is the second thing that enables us to follow the command. Recognizing how God has forgiven us that we ourselves have trespassed against God and recognizing how God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. Kids, in that third box on your outline, under that question, why should I forgive them? The answer is because God forgives me. That's why those end words in those verses are so important. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's such an integral part of what Paul is saying in both verses. In other words, because God has been merciful to you, then you also should be merciful to others without condition and without exception. Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18 is a, is a big help for us in understanding this. A parable that Jesus shared after one of his own disciples came up and said, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive someone who has done something wrong against me? Should I forgive them seven times? And Jesus says, no, you should forgive them 70 times seven. The, the times are un unlimited. And then he gives this parable as an illustration. The short version is that a man was indebted to a king for a massive sum of money, a debt that would have taken many, many lifetimes to repay. The king was about to have the man and his entire family sold into slavery to recoup some of his loss. But when the man begged for forgiveness, the king showed him mercy. And he forgave the massive sum that was owed to him. The servant, of course, goes away celebrating at what has just happened. But then he immediately goes out. He finds one of his own fellow servants who owed him a much smaller amount, a debt that would have taken less than a year to repay. And when that servant was unable to repay that debt, he had him thrown into prison. He didn't show the same kind of mercy that he had been shown by the king. And the king receives word of this and 
He brings this servant in. He reinstates the full debt and he has the man thrown into prison until he could repay it. Something that would have been impossible in just one lifetime. What is it that Jesus is pressing into us through this parable? He's creating a contrast between the size of the debt that we owed in our sin against him and the size of the debt that is owed to us in the ways that we have sinned against, been sinned against by others. In our trespasses against God, we are like the servant who owed the king 200,000 years worth of wages. And at the snap of his fingers, the king has said, you are free and clear. And those, of, those who have hurt us in any way, in every form, are like the other servant who owed just a hundred days wages. And you and I have this tendency to lose perspective on the size of the debts. We minimize the size of the debt. We minimize what God has done while maximizing what others have done to us. But at the very moment that we begin to say, God, you don't understand. Look at what he did to me. Look at what she did to me. God looks right back at us and he says, but look at what I did for you. Bring this back into perspective. Put your debt to me higher and their debt to you lower. And there lies the third reality that enables us to follow the command. And that is having a thankful heart for the gift that we have received. The unmerciful servant's problem in the parable was that he wasn't truly thankful for what he had received. He hadn't really meditated on just how much he had been given at the king's words. Look at what Paul writes just before the command in Colossians 2, 6-7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Thankfulness is such an important part of why we are able to forgive in the way that God has commanded. If I recognize how much God has done to me in my own forgiveness, he's canceled my debt, he's given me eternal salvation, he's sealed me as one of his own children for the rest of time, then that gratefulness, that thankfulness overflows into my ability to be forgiving and merciful towards others because I realize that I am owed nothing by God. And I also realize that I am owed nothing by anybody else because I myself am a sinner saved by grace just as he or she is a sinner in need of grace. But if I begin to lose that thankful heart and start to believe that God or others owe me something, something even as small as an apology, then I quickly lose this ability to be merciful. And so we know that we are enabled to forgive because God is the one who has ultimately been trespassed against, because he's chosen to forgive our own debt, and because we are thankful for the gift that we have received. But how does this play out in our lives? Because we know that this is still a really difficult command, especially if forgiveness seems to be something that is so emotionally driven. 
We'll look at what Paul says at the beginning of chapter 3 in Colossians, starting in verse 1. Colossians 3, 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. We forgive first by having an eternal perspective. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 1. Because if I lived every day believing that this was all there was, then I would take great offense at every single wrong that was done to me. Because every time someone hurt me or said something badly to me or caused me to have a memory that I was going to have to live with the rest of my life, then those moments would represent immeasurably valuable time that was taken out of a small and finite number of years that I had to live. That every time you hurt me, it would take away from the 80 years or so that I had to live, or maybe a little longer if I'm lucky. Because our time is so short. But... If I recognize that God has saved me to live with Him eternally in glory, then there is nothing that a person can do to me to reduce and detract from the glorious, infinite reality that is to come. You can't take away enough years from me, enough memories from me. In fact, every hurt only serves to cause me to long more deeply for that time that I will get to live in God's glory. Having this perspective enables me to do the next thing that leads to forgiveness. And that is praying for the eternal salvation of the one who has wronged me. Kids, on your outline, in that last box, under that question, how do I forgive them? I want you to write, pray for, and then write that person's name who hurt you. Pray for this person. Pray for the eternal salvation of the one who has wronged me. Let me ask you this question, and it's a really difficult question. Has anyone hurt you so badly that you want them, in a real sense, not metaphorically, not not figuratively, but in a real, literal sense, to spend eternity in hell separated from God? That's a really hard question, and and please don't hear me say that I'm minimizing the behavior of people who have done heinous things to you and others, because I know for a fact that there are people in this room who have been hurt very, very deeply by people. There are people watching online who have been hurt very, very deeply by people, and and I don't minimize that at all. But the question still stands. Have they hurt you so badly that you want them to go to hell? Is their soul worth less than the soul of others? And now here's the really hard part. The Bible shows us that if we are hidden in Christ, if we are truly Christian, if we have set our hearts and our minds on things above, on heavenly things, as Paul have said, then, then not one of us, regardless of what has been done to us, 
should ever answer that question with, yes, I want them to go to hell forever. Put another way, if I am in Christ and I have been abused in the worst possible sense by another person, then I should still desire to see that person saved and living with me in the glory of God when we both die. That doesn't mean that there aren't earthly consequences for sin or that we shouldn't pursue justice and put people in prison for what they have done, perhaps for their entire lives if the crime warrants it. It also doesn't mean that I trust that person or have to trust that person. We oftentimes connect forgiveness and trust too closely. They, they are two entirely different things. I can forgive someone for stealing from me, but I'm not going to put them in charge of my checkbook. That's the difference between forgiveness and trust. And so there, there are earthly consequences for sin, and, and it also doesn't mean that I, that I necessarily trust them. It does mean, however, that while the person may be paying those earthly consequences, while that person may be spending the rest of his life in prison, that I pray for him, praying that in the time he has left, that he would give his life and his sin over to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for who? Your friends? No. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because praying for them elevates the worth of their soul far and above the deeds of their body. Pray for their salvation. Finally, we forgive by walking like Jesus. He is our great example in what mercy and forgiveness look like because over the course of his life, his earthly life, he genuinely forgave every single person who ever sinned against him personally. Even his very own friends. You think about Thomas who doubted that Jesus was who he said he was, allowed to touch Jesus' wounds and know that he is who he says he is. Peter who denied knowing Jesus three times in order to save his own life allowed by Jesus to tell him three times how much he loved him and to be assured of Jesus' love for him. You and I, every single sin, every act of indiscretion, every trespass against the Father sitting squarely on the shoulders of Jesus as he hung from the cross. And what did he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The biblical command to forgive is humanly impossible. But with God, all things are possible. As he has enabled us, and he has shown us by his son, Jesus Christ, and he has filled us with the Holy Spirit who is so much greater than the one who is in this world. And in doing all of these things, he's given us what we need to follow this humanly impossible command. I pray today that you have received mercy from the Father through Jesus Christ and that in doing so, that you'll go and do likewise. And if you've not yet received that mercy, if you don't yet know what it means to be forgiven by God through Jesus Christ, then this is your invitation to come.
Let's stand and let's pray together. Father, your, your word is hard sometimes. Sometimes it's difficult to look at these commands that, that we have been given and we know that we are expected to live by these, to live in this way, not as a means to earn salvation, but because we have been saved, we live this way. And yet some of it just seems impossible. It seems so hard to change how we feel. But Lord, you've enabled us and you've shown us by your son how to forgive, how to be merciful. And so my prayer for us in this room and for those who are watching is that we would live lives of thankfulness that overflow into our mercy to others, that we would walk like Jesus, look to his example and do this because it's in this way that we see others saved. Thank you, Father, for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.